You're listening to Adventure Rider Podcast, covering motorcycle adventure riding around the globe. Hi, I'm Jim Martin, the host for Adventure Rider Podcast, and i got to tell you, I'm so pleased to be here today. I'm pleased for a couple of reasons. One, I'm totally addicted to motorcycles, and I love anything to do with motorcycles. But two, this is the first issue for the Adventure Rider Podcast, and I'm really stoked to be a part of it. It's a great time for, for motorcycles right now, especially for the adventure motorcycle industry, um, because it's the fastest-growing segment in the moto industry, that and women riders, and um, and that's great, great for us here. So you don't have to be a glory trotter to be an adventure rider or to be interested in the adventure rider podcast because there's a lot of different ideas about what makes up adventure riding and basically for our purposes here on the adventure rider show um, we define adventure riding as packing up your motorcycle and heading off on any sort of trip and that's where you find adventure be it for a few days a few years in your own country or around the globe it's adventure you're after and you're going to find that right around the corner or in another continent So welcome and enjoy what we have for you today, and I hope you subscribe and become a regular listener for us. Afterwards, visit our website at www.adventureriderpodcast.com and click on the feedback button. We'd love to get your comments and suggestions for future shows. Now, I want to talk to you about today's show. we got a great one ahead. Uh, the first thing I want to do before we talk about what's on the show is uh, I want to welcome Misadventuring Carla King to the Adventure Rider podcast as a regular correspondent. Carla is well-known in the adventure motorcycle industry. Um, she's an adventure travel journalist. She's a book author, and she, and she runs a, a self-publishing boot camp and educational program. Carla has a wealth of knowledge for adventure riding, and she's going to be bringing us a lot and every show. So that's great. Welcome, Carla, and we're so pleased to have you with us. Each one of our shows at the Adventure Rider Podcast will have a theme. Uh, The theme today is packing and camping. So our segments will reflect that. Carla King will have us uh, some coverage from the Overland Expo, uh, where she talks with Ted Simon. Um, I will talk with Dr. Gregory Frazier, uh, who is an author and a world motorcycle traveler. We'll be getting some camping and packing tips from him. And Carla will also look at a a couple of tents for us. And I'll be throwing in my few cents worth uh, as far as uh, some camping tips. I've been in the adventure tourism industry for uh, over 20 years now. So I've learned a lot about camping over the years, and I want to pass on some of the things that I've learned um, doing it for a living. So let's jump right into it, and we're going to start off with Carla King and her coverage of the Overland Expo. Hi, this is Misadventuring Carla King with a report from Overland Expo 2014. If you don't know about Overland Expo, it's in Flagstaff, Arizona in May every year, and it has grown and grown. It's just a wonderful place to meet other motorcyclists and outdoor enthusiasts. It's about half motorcycle and half 4x4 and RV people. And we just all share a common love of exploring the world on wheels. I had the pleasure of teaching a few classes and leading some panel discussions One was travel tips from several different kinds of travelers. One of them was Ted Simon, who you know, he wrote Jupiter's Travels, the most famous motorcycling and traveling book I think there is on the planet. It's been translated into many, many languages. 
I asked each of the panelists if they spoke a lot of languages, because this is what comes up for me when I say I've traveled the world. I only speak French and a little bit of Italian and Spanish, but I get along just fine. So I asked this question of the panel, and Ted Simon just had the best answer, so I want to share it with you here. I speak French, German, Spanish. Spanish I learned on the trot. Uh, Portuguese I learned in Brazil and then forgot when I got to Spain, <laughs> when I got to Argentina. Uh, languages come and go, but, but, but really you don't have to have them um, unless you want to discuss the economy or uh, you know, uh, business enterprises or things like that. One of, the, one of the best conversations I can ever remember having was when I was walking through Ukraine about 20 years ago. And, and I didn't speak Russian or Ukrainian, which are separate languages. Um, and I uh, and I was on the ro- I'd obviously gone on the wrong road because there weren't any maps either in those days. And funnily enough, there weren't. Um, and I was on the wrong road, and I ended up in a place that I knew wasn't where I was supposed to go. And I had to find out how to get to where I was supposed to go. And there was uh, and there were trains. There was a station. I went to the station. And nobody could understand what I was talking about um, because they told me to take the bus, and there were, there were no buses. It was the only word I could hear was bus, and, the, and there was a, a a railway control cabin where there were three men uh, controlling the traffic. I mean, I don't know how many men you need to control the like one. Well, there was a train every hour, and. Uh, and one of them was a, was obviously from Mon- Mongolia or somewhere like that. Big round head with green eyes and big golden teeth. And another one was your real sort of staccanovite. And the and, and uh, anyway, we we talked for I think for an hour or more. We had a marvelous time. Not, we didn't understand a word of what any of us were saying. And it took it took a long time for me to discover that in Ukraine the word for train is bus. Uh, and uh, all I had to do was take the train, right? uh, uh, which I did, and I got there. But we had such a good time. I remember those people so clearly, you know, all, all their faces, uh, the, the jokes that they were telling that I couldn't understand but made me laugh. That, that, that's the essence, for me, the essence of... of of being in these countries is, um, is 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 finding getting close to the people, and you don't need the language to do it. Wasn't that a great answer? I love that story, and I think that most motorcycle travelers or any traveler who's adventurous and has traveled the world will recognize that story as one they've had themselves. So here's to going out and exploring the world. Thanks for listening. This is Carla King for the Adventure Writer Podcast, and you can find me at CarlaKing.com. The name Dr. Gregory Frazier is one that is familiar to many adventure motorcyclists. He's a prolific author and writer and film producer, and having circumnavigated the globe five times and ridden over one million miles, Frazier knows a thing or two about packing for adventure. 
and he seems happy to give away his hard-earned secrets when I caught up with him today at his home in the Bighorn Mountains of Montana. This is Gregory Frazier. I'm from uh, Yellowtail, Montana, which is in the Bighorn Mountains of Montana, right on the Wyoming border. I'm a writer, journalist, film producer, and pretty much of a leaf in the wind when it comes to uh, about half the year. Uh, Dr. Frazier, hello, and uh, thanks very much for um, taking the time to speak with us on Adventure Rider Podcast. Before we get started talking about camping and packing, i got to ask, I mean, after five times around the world, that's a lot of times, you must see things that have changed, and you must see things that um, sort of look the same. Uh, What's different after five times around the globe? Each each one of those five trips around the world was different. Uh, I can say that... uh, the world's gotten smaller after those five trips. That doesn't mean that uh, uh, I've been everywhere by any means. Uh, I keep finding new places to poke around, but uh, I was approached to do a sixth trip around the world, which I agreed to do, and one of the conditions was that we go some places that I hadn't been before, and we go to some places where I had been before I never want to see again. at the same time, we'd do it on a, a different uh, uh, plan than the earlier five. So the world's not been uh, fully explored as far as I'm concerned, but I know some places that I don't want to see again. Smaller? Well, it's smaller from the standpoint of uh, uh, remoteness. Uh, it used to be difficult to get to places like Russia. Uh, back when I started circling the globe, uh, Russia was a real hard country to get into by motorcycle, and now it's relatively easy. Of course, that depends on which way the political winds are blowing uh, from year to year, but uh, now we can transit Russia, which is eight time zones across, relatively easy, whereas back in the early 80s when I started to wander the globe, it, it was it was impossible unless you threw big money at the problem. Do you prefer to camp or hotel? It depends on where I'm going, whether I'm camping or not. For instance, if I go to Alaska, I camp a lot because the the cost of a hotel or a motel or even a, a guest house or bed and breakfast is so exorbitantly high. Uh, for instance, at uh, uh, Dead Horse, Alaska, you're not going to get out of there for, for less than $200 a night or cold foot. Uh, on the way up to Dead Horse. Uh, So I camp at those places if I can. Um, Other places like Southeast Asia where I spend a considerable amount of time, I I don't think I've camped in 10 years. Uh, The cost of a a hotel room or motel room uh, is, is relatively inexpensive depending on your taste. And I don't carry a sleeping bag or a tent over there, and I've I've covered every country in Southeast Asia. So it really depends. What makes the difference between camping or hotel choice for you? Well, there's there's all there's the question of safety. Like there are places in in Africa where it's just not wise to pitch your tent uh, out out in the open, and when you're going to camp there, uh, many times it's in inside of an enclosed camping area, not so much because of the animals that people think about, but because of the two-legged animals that are out there. Um, other countries like Europe, uh, again, 
uh, I camp a lot when I travel in Europe because the campgrounds, uh, I, I talk about Central Europe here, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, Italy. The campgrounds are, are private and uh, they're very amenable. Um, the, the cost of a hotel room, on the other hand, or a motel room, or even a guest house is, is on the higher end of the scale. So that's a cost that I can control where, where I sleep. Uh, and when you're looking at a average daily cost when you're moving in some countries like Germany or Switzerland or Austria uh, of maybe two to three hundred dollars a day, uh, that's one part of your budget that you've got some control on. You can cut down your cost. Well, you mentioned safety. I mean, how do you know if it's safe? What What are your indicators? Uh, a lot of that has to do with the nose and the wind and uh, and experience. If they, uh, if, if the locals tell you don't camp in uh, Medellin, Colombia, and uh, you hear that in the bar, and you hear that at the at the hotel that you've stayed at, um, you, you don't camp in Medellin. Uh, it just depends on where you are and and what your, I guess your your risk factor is, your personal. I call it your beta factor. Uh, where your envelope is on on taking risk and management. Have you had some security issues with camping? Uh, I was in a gated campground. I I call it gated. It was secured. It had a fence around it uh, in Africa. And uh, I was in there with uh, uh, overlanders that were in big 4x4s and some motorcyclists. Uh, that night, uh, one of the locals decided to crawl over the fence and come into the into the camping compound, and the, the security guards shot him at about two o'clock in the morning. Um, that's kind of an interesting way to wake up, is to hear the the fire of a couple of guns. Uh, there were two security guards actually that decided to to take justice in hand and send a message to any of the other locals that wanted to come into the campground. Yeah, the problems that I find in campgrounds is obviously when you you're there, uh, your stuff is exposed. Whether it's in the tent, on your motorcycle, you're in the shower, you're in the restaurant eating, um, you don't have the security. So I've had stuff disappear off the motorcycle and from within the tent. Uh, fortunately, it's never disappeared while I was in the tent with it. But I know I know of cases that that has been the instance. In your opinion, what's the most important thing to remember when you're packing your motorcycle for adventure? Pack it light, and the second rule of thumb is pack it low. Having said that, what do you think of tank bags? I like tank bags, but again, it's uh, it's weight. It's up high, so you don't want to fill it up with. Uh, you know, all of your heavy camera equipment. Uh, I used to travel with a, a tank bag that, that carried 44 liters. Uh, and initially I thought, well, that's great because it also was wind protection, but uh, it's awkward. And the tendency is to put heavy things in it because of the ease of access, like travel books, cameras, um, which is not where you want that weight. You want it lower. Uh, and the cameras now today have gotten much smaller. They're not much of a, as much of an issue as they used to be. But personally, I like tank bags. Uh, I've used a, oh, probably 
two dozen different kinds of tank bags over the years. I've got some favorites and some that are less favorite, but overall, I'll take a tank bag. What are a few things that uh, people most often overlook when they're packing their gear? They take too much. Uh, that, that's not overlooking. It's just that they think they're going to need it, and they carry it, and they find that uh, they haven't used it. Uh, I think the second uh, is they they pack their stuff and, and take off without really testing whether or not they're their support system to keep it on the motorcycle is is good. So probably a question that everyone has in their mind when they're listening to someone with your experience and and your vast uh, traveling past, and I, I'm sure you feel this question all the time, they're going to ask you, how do you decide what to bring or what to leave at home? Okay, I think the, the best rule of thumb is lay everything out on the ground uh, you know, on the cement or wherever that you want to take with you and then cut it in half. How do you do that when you're looking at all of your things that you are already planning on taking out in front of you on the concrete and you're trying to decide how to cut it in half? And my rule of thumb is I leave behind what I don't think I can find on the road ahead. Uh, for for instance, clothes. Uh, I, I don't carry jeans uh, oh, because well, number one, they're heavy, and number two, they're bulky. But uh, uh, you can always find a pair of pants. Uh, so I've got, uh, instead of uh, what I would normally think, yeah, two, two pairs of pants for a week, I'll just carry one. Same with uh, shirts. You can always find a T-shirt. Uh, the bulky stuff. Uh, yeah, the same with, uh, oh, batteries. Uh, you may want to carry batteries with you because you can buy them cheaper at Costco, but uh, it seems wherever I go in the world I can find batteries, and that's a heavy item that uh, I can leave behind. Tools, for instance, are heavy and bulky and a real problem for most of us to decide. Which tools do you think uh, the average person should be taking? Oh, that's, a, that's a tough one. Well, first, uh, it depends on the motorcycle. Uh, one set uh, may be applicable to one bike and, and, and totally useless on another. Um, I have a, a pretty standard set that I start off with, and then I add things that are specific to that motorcycle. And I also use those tools before I leave to do routine maintenance, like an oil change or a tire change. Instead of using the tools out of my toolbox that are in my studio, I'll use the toolkit that I carry with me on the bike to make sure that I've got what I need, and number two, that I'm going to use what I carry. How about spare parts for your motorcycle? <laughs> yeah. On certain motorcycles, you want to carry a truck behind you. <laughs> uh, again, it's it, it, it's specific to the motorcycle. You can get on these forums and read forever about the uh, maintenance and, and and what's uh, what's breaking or what's uh, not functioning after a period of time. Um, a lot of it has to do with the uh, again where the, the motorcycle is made and, and, and its quality control. The newer motorcycles have become so complicated that uh, the checklist of what I would normally carry 
20 years ago is is much longer and is much much more expensive as they become more electronic. Uh, I, I, I hear of computers dying, and that's not a cheap spare part to carry. On the other side of the coin, uh, when I took the KLR around the world back in 2002, I, I called up Kawasaki and asked them to send me a spare coil and a spare CDI, uh, which were two things that I knew uh, liked to go bad uh, on my BMWs, uh, the coils specifically. And the, and the Kawasaki representative said, well, why do you need a, a spare coil or, or a, a CDI? And I, I said, look, I'm going where there are no Kawasaki dealers, for instance. I'm going across Russia, and I'm going into Africa. Uh, and if that coil dies or that CDI dies, I'm stuck. I, I, I have to sit and wait for maybe uh, two weeks to get a spare part flown in. And the, the representative said, uh, well, we'll send them to you, but really, they never go bad, uh, which they didn't. And I still got the, the brand new CDI and the brand new coil in a box uh, after uh, 40,000 miles. But those are things that I, I, I knew on other bikes would be uh, a weak point. What do you consider mandatory regardless of the, the maker model of bike? I use a lot of motorcycles that, that have a chain, for instance. I always carry a spare master link. That's just, uh, I carry it not in my toolkit, I carry it in my uh, trap, my personal shaving kit, because I move that from motorcycle to motorcycle. Um, it's, it's one of those things that if it comes off, or for some reason you, you need it, uh, you can't really make one on the side of the road. Have you used your spare master link before? Uh, I've used it in Cambodia. Uh, I threw a, a chain uh, in in Cambodia, and uh, I got a great picture in my my new book of me laying underneath the the motorcycle in the mud, uh, putting on the uh, um, the master link. And the guy that took the picture, he, he said, you know, I think you've been to this rodeo before because I I pulled that master link out of my shaving kit. New motorcycles have multiple computers on them, umpteen electrical connectors and sensors. Um, how do you feel about these high-tech bikes for long-distance travel to remote places? They scare me, and I, I try not to use them. I'm kind of an old-school guy. I like stuff that I can kind of sort out the problems. Uh, I see, uh, I saw a recall last week on a, on a particular brand where... Uh, the manufacturer said, do not ride this motorcycle because of an electronic glitch. Um, I like the older stuff, because even the the pre-computer stuff, because, well, let's say you're in South America and you need a coil. Well, there'll be some guy that can pull one out of a wrecked car or modify it. But with the new computerized uh, systems, uh, you're really at the mercy of somebody that has a computer that can plug it into your motorcycle to tell you what's wrong with it. And that's that's beyond me. I'm not mechanically uh, uh, capable of doing that, nor do I really want to do it. Uh, on the upside is that the, uh, as the sophistication becomes uh, um, better and, and more tested, uh, it eliminates a lot of the problems that the older bikes had. 
but b- bottom line, it, it scares me. I, I don't think uh, on this current trip that I'm on that I'm going to take a modern motorcycle across Russia again. Uh, I'll take something that's uh, older that I can I can work on myself. What are your preferences for tire repairs? Well, there's three things that are that, that come to mind first. Whether I'm I'm using tube tires or tubeless tires, I carry uh, two spare tubes, one to fit the front, one to fit the back. Uh, that's because if I do cut the sidewall or get a big enough hole that a patch or a plug uh, can't fix on a tubeless tire, I can always stick a tube in it and uh, and make it work. Uh, the other thing that I, I I substitute out of a a normal motorcycle tire kit is the tire irons themselves. I hate these little things that are six inches long and that bend when you put them on a on, on a, a good rim. Uh, so I I go for the the longer. They're nearly a foot long, uh, heavier duty tire uh, irons. I've got a couple of titanium ones that I got from a company out of the Duluth, Minnesota. That uh, uh, although they're small, they're tough, and you can put an extension on them, and they still won't bend. So a good pair of tire irons, and then your standard patch kit. Uh, I use a, a stop and plug, I think it's called, for the uh, the tubeless tires, and then I've got a couple of uh, uh, standard car tire uh, inner tube patch kits that you could pick up at an auto parts store that I use for the the tube tires. From the pictures that I've seen of your travels, it looks like you've tried both hard and soft uh, panniers. Which do you prefer? Depends, like, again, how long I'm going, where I'm going. As you noted, I use both. Uh, I like the, the metal bags because uh, of the security issue. Somebody just can't walk by and take a, a knife and slice open your, your bag and, and get what's ever in there. Uh, when you're using a hard uh, aluminum or hard plastic pannier, um, on the downside uh, of the the harder or the or the the, the plastic uh, panniers is that they 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 can bite you. Uh, I myself and a couple of other noted travelers have <clears throat> managed to uh, break our own legs with the uh, heavier equipment. Uh, <clears throat> They they don't give, whereas the soft-sided bags do when you fall over. Well, I'm I'm going to have to ask about the broken leg. Uh, I went down at about two miles an hour in some deep, soft sugar sand, and uh, I the bike fell over on the right side. My foot, my yeah, the better part of my foot was pinned under the aluminum pannier on the right side. That didn't break my leg. What broke my leg was when I tried to twist it to get out from underneath the panniers. I rolled off the the motorcycle, and that uh, uh, compound fractured it right above the ankle. Did that turn you off from using hard panniers? Uh, I still use the hard bags. <laughs> I just <laughs> twenty years ago that probably wouldn't have broken my ankle. What I what I have going against me is old bones, and. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, it it didn't really hurt at the time. There was a minor, oh, that hurt, uh, but it wasn't bad. I was able to to stand up, and I hopped around a little bit. Uh, it, 
and was smart enough, I think, to to, to take some pictures of, of the downed motorcycle, which the publisher decided to use on the cover of my new book. I took that picture with a broken leg. <laughs> Another acquaintance of mine had a huge set of aluminum bags, uh, panniers, that he had mounted on his bike, and, and they were obviously too low in the back, uh, too close to the ground. And uh, when I first, he sent me a picture of him, uh, I said, you know, Ted, you ought, to, you ought to cut about six inches off the bottom of those boxes uh, because uh, you, you don't have any room to paddle um, with uh, your heel. And uh, that's what happened to him in Africa as he was paddling and got his heel caught under it and broke his leg. Uh, there's no give on those aluminum panniers, whereas there is some on the soft-sided bags. Anything we should be considering about the overall size of a bag for an adventure motorcycle? Yeah. The Europeans have a rule of, uh, I think it's a road rule, that says that the, from the outside of the handlebars or the bags or whatever, the motorcycle cannot be more than uh, one meter wide, uh, which is, uh, sets the, the width of, uh, of your panniers. Um, you also don't want them wider than your handlebars if you're splitting traffic because the handlebars are, are what you're measuring the space between the, the vehicles. Uh, I, I've seen some that are, uh, they got to carry 45, 50 liters of, of stuff. Uh, and I wonder, uh, it, 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 they're just huge. Um, why somebody needs that much stuff. I tend to go for the middle or the median on the on the size. The boxes that I've got on the bike that I'm using now are, uh, I, I think, nine inches wide. They're not narrow and they're not fat. It seems to me that no matter how big the bags are, they are always full. <laughs> I think that's a rule of nature. If there's room, you're going to stuff stuff in it. It's kind of like a garage. If you've got space, you start putting more stuff in it. What about packing extra gear on, holding your extra bags on, your camera boxes, all that sort of um, extraneous things that we manage to put on the backs of our motorcycles? What sort of strapping system are you using? I come from the old school. I use bungee cords, heavy-duty bungee cords. Um, I think uh, the one thing that people forget to do... and and I've been guilty of it. My learning curve was real steep. I lost stuff off the back. People forget to run those bungee cords or whatever tie-downs they're using through one of the handles of whatever they've got on the back, whether it's a bag or a backpack uh, or a, even a suitcase, uh, so that when it does come loose, you're dragging it behind you. And, Hopefully you can hear it before it breaks. <laughs> Clearly there's some stories there of lost gear. <laughs> yeah, I've got several stories. I've, I've, I've left stuff all over the, all over the planet. Um, two days before I was to leave on a trip uh, to Asia, the bag on the back of my motorcycle came loose, and inside of it was my uh, airline ticket, my passport, and, uh, uh, some other gear that was less important, but the two things that were the most valuable were the passport and the airline ticket. And the bag bounced off the road into the bushes. And I, I drove another 20 miles before I realized it was gone. And out of sheer panic, turned around and, and went back. And I found it. It was just lucky that it hadn't ended up on the road 
where somebody could have picked it up, or secondly, that it had gone far enough into the bushes that I couldn't find it. But that that was a panic afternoon. And again, my fault because I hadn't run the uh, bungee cords through the through the loops or uh, handles on the on the orderly bag that I had on the back. It just worked its way out from underneath the the uh, bungee cords. I imagine after spending as much time as you have on the road, you've got to narrow your, your camping gear, your personal camping gear, down uh, considerably to the necessities or the things that, that you like to take with you. So what do you carry for your personal camping gear? I carry a sleeping bag, and I also carry a, what we call a sleeping sack, which is really like a sheet that's, that's sewed together. I've got several models. You can buy them at sporting goods stores. I've got a couple that are made out of silk that I got in in uh, Vietnam, but I use them instead of the sleeping bag when I'm in certain guest houses or hotels. They don't take up much space, and uh, they can actually be used as a liner for the sleeping bag. I carry a, an inflatable air mattress rather than one that self-inflates. I have several of the self-inflating kinds, and I like them because you, know, you just unroll them and they pump up by themselves and give them a little help, but they're bulky. And so I've gone back to the old blow-it-up-by-yourself air mattress. Um, of course, I carry a tent, and you can argue about which ones are better um, or best. Uh, I've got some preferences, but everybody's got their own. I also carry a, a plastic uh, ground cloth uh, that goes under the tent before I put the tent up. And that's mainly so I don't get any uh, uh, moisture up through the tent at night or when it rains. And I also carry uh, I don't know what you'd call a painter's plastic, a real cheap. Uh, they're 12 by 12, I think, just clear plastic. They fold up very small, and they're. And $2 or $3. I use those for when I've really got a good downpour in my, my tent. Although it's well-maintained, uh, they all seem to somehow find a place where water can get in. And I, I throw that, that plastic over the top and hold it down with a couple of stones. Um, I found that those are good anti-water accessories that are, that are cheap. Um, I also uh, have good rain gear. Um, I carry, uh, on most of my extended, I'll say extended two or three day trips uh, where I'm off uh, doing some more extreme traveling, uh, looking at uh, camping, I carry a can of spaghetti. Uh, you just buy it at the supermarket for $1.50. Uh, that's for the nights when uh, I don't really want to to worry about cooking or I can't find a place to eat, you can open that can of spaghetti and eat it without cooking it. You got at least some uh, protein and some carbohydrates. And uh, one of my luxuries is I carry an umbrella, a real small fold-up, maybe it's uh, 10 inches long. I've learned this from my uh, British friends over the years. I had a lady friend who she couldn't pick up her motorcycle. It was just too big. And uh, I asked her, you know, because she'd gone down through Africa, I said, what happened when you dropped it? And she said, well, she would uh, get out her umbrella and uh, sit on top of the motorcycle with the umbrella under the sun and wait for somebody to come by and pick up her motorcycle for her. Okay, let me ask you a hypothetical question just for fun. 
If you were going on a trip and you were only allowed to have three considerations for your motorcycle, just three, what are the top three things that pop into your mind right away? I think top of the list would be a, a good set of tires. The second would be a, a good battery. Um, and the third would be uh, uh, a good suspension system. And your favorite bike for adventure trips? I'm like a working lady. I, I, I'm an agnostic when it comes to uh, uh, what's best. Everybody has their own uh, choice. I've probably had over 200 motorcycles over the years, and uh, uh, there's some that I I stay away from. Um, others that uh, personally I I have a, a fondness for, but. Really, if it has two wheels and an engine, I'm game. And I should add that I'm uh, also budget-oriented. These adventure bikes that push the $25,000, $30,000 envelope by the time you're out the door with them, um, they're out of my budget. Uh, I can buy two or three others for that same amount of money and go the same places, um, see the same things, I like to tell people that anything over 40 horsepower is wasted on me. I can't use the rest of it. I qualify that from when I used to race. That's what I wanted when I was racing was more horsepower, more more energy. But uh, now I'm happy to plug along at uh, 75, 80, 80 miles an hour, and I can do that on a 35 to 40 horsepower engine. I have friends, acquaintances that uh, have... Uh, unlimited budgets really when it comes to their equipment and I think they're having as much fun as I am on a um, $2,000 motorcycle. We're going over the same road, we see the same things, we're pretty much at the same speed and uh, I can do it longer because uh, I've got uh, $15,000 travel money that uh, they've, they've spent on their equipment. That doesn't mean that the bigger bikes and uh, the more sophisticated bikes, the uh, heavyweight models, aren't good. It's just a personal preference. You've got another new book out. Um, can you tell us about that? It's called Down and Out from uh, Patagonia to Kathmandu. It's available from uh, motorbooks.com. Motorbooks is the largest motor book publisher in the world, so it's available through the better bookstores internet, Amazon.com, or directly from motorbooks.com. We cover uh, how I got to be what's been uh, called America's number one extreme adventure rider. As Fred Rao from uh, Motorcycle Consumer News uh, once dubbed me, he said, a total fanatic, uh, how I got to that point, and uh, uh, motorcycling from from racing to uh, uh, pushing an envelope on global travel. One of my uh, adventure riding friends uh, said that uh, no adventure riders should buy that book because uh, it's going to uh, um, cause them to quit their job, tell their wife and girlfriend and kids goodbye, and take off. The cover of the book is quite intriguing. It's got a picture of your motorcycle on its side, and I know there's a story behind that. Uh, the publisher wanted a, uh, a number of photos with my motorcycle, and 
in bad positions or bad places, and, and of them all, uh, they picked the one that broke my leg that I was smart enough to hobble away from and, and take the photos of. I managed to drop motorcycles all over the planet. I, I don't have any ego when it comes to uh, uh, saying that uh, you know, I, I don't uh, get off. I hit the only rock in the desert down in the middle of uh, Mexico, uh, and there's a picture of it in the book. Uh, there, there was no other rock around, and I managed to hit it with the front wheel. I had no ego when it comes to dropping motorcycles. It's one of my friends. He's taken his Harley to every every country in the world. He said the sign of a professional is when you drop your motorcycle, you go back and take a picture of it. You don't just run over and pick it up. <laughs> there, there's a great tip. Uh, you want to look like a pro, don't pick your bike up right away. Make sure you snap a photo first. <laughs> I know when I contacted you to set up this interview, uh, you'd mentioned that you're working on going on another trip. As a matter of fact, I think it was a couple of trips that you'd mentioned. Um, what are you working on next? Another guy talked me into going around the world with him two years ago. First, he came to me and said, uh, he'd like to go around the world, and could I go with him? And I said, no, I've done it five times, and I really don't see uh, anything there that I want to do that I haven't done before. And he said, well, think about it for a month. And think about how you could do it differently than you'd done any of the previous five. So we came up with a plan uh, to do it in legs. And we've completed the first leg, which was from uh, uh, Los Angeles Airport uh, up to, I went up to Seattle, he went up to Portland, and then we crossed, uh, we connected again the next night in Spokane. We went to New York and then down to Florida. And we, we took two 1983 Honda Silver Wings because I'd had experience with them before and he uh, collects the 83 turbos. So he, he knows a lot about them. And we also know that these motorcycles we're going to take to South America and like I did before, we're going to leave them probably in the Argentina or Uruguay once we're down there. But uh, uh, we then, after hitting Florida, we decided we we could get along together, but we were also going to take a pit stop. And so I'm on a pit stop right now, and it's an extended pit stop, let's say a, a year. And then we go down and collect the motorcycles and do our next leg, which is South America. So that's an ongoing uh, trip around the world that we're doing differently than the others that I've done. I also spend my winters in Southeast Asia. I like that part of the world versus uh, the snow in Montana where I live. So uh, I run around. Uh, uh, this year I've got planned uh, Vietnam, uh, Thailand, and uh, possibly uh, Malaysia or Indonesia. Uh, next week I'm off on a two-week expedition into uh, the Rocky Mountains of Wyoming and, and Montana. And uh, I've also got a uh, uh, Central America trip planned for the fall before I go over to Asia. Well, Dr. Frazier, I want to thank you for uh, coming on to Adventure Rider Podcast and uh, giving us some, some of your, uh, your hard-earned tips on uh, camping and packing. And we'll certainly follow you to see where your future adventures take you and us as we read about your adventures in the, the various magazines and, uh, and websites and books that you produce on a regular basis. Sure. Have a great afternoon. I've been speaking with Dr. Gregory Frazier uh, from his home in Montana as he gets prepared to go on yet another trip by motorcycle.
You can find out more about the adventures of Dr. Gregory Fraser at Horizons Unlimited website, which is horizonsunlimited.com forward slash Greg Fraser. Or you could uh, go to MotorcycleUSA.com, which is a, the large internet uh, magazine that many of us read that Dr. Fraser is a contributor to. Or just do a simple Google search and you'll find links to his websites and to the books that he's written. And check out his latest book called Down and Out in Patagonia. And we'll put a link to that um, on the show notes on the website, AdventureRiderPodcast.com. I've been in the adventure tourism business for about 20 years now, a little more, I guess. And I've picked up a lot of things over the years as far as camping goes, because camping is something I, I did exclusively. Um, and I dealt with a, a lot of guides and thousands of people out on trips. So I'm going to give you a, a couple of tips that, that I've found quite useful. One is diaper wipes, or what we like to call wet wipes, if you're a little uncomfortable with the sound of a diaper wipe. But a wet wipe is basically those cloths that come in a, in a prepackaged, um, sometimes little box and sometimes just like a plastic envelope. And they're, they're wet, wet disposable cloths. Um, there's a, a couple of different versions. You get, you get it scented and unscented. I prefer the, the unscented ones if possible. And uh, I also try and get the, the ones that uh, biodegrade quickly so that you can just dump them anywhere. But this has to be one of the most important travel tips, I think, especially for the motorcycle rider, because you're sitting on your butt for so long in your hot, sweaty clothes, um, you know, all day long. One of the best things you can use for cleaning, either when you go to the washroom or when you're in your tent, is a, a wet wipe, because it basically gives you a, a mini wash. And um, it's a great way to stay clean. It's a great way to feel fresh. I put it in my tank bag, so I've always got them there with me. So answer yourself this question. Do you stuff your tent and your tarp or do you roll it up? And is there a difference? Some years ago, the, some of the manufacturers of tents and sleeping bags started this thing where they're pushing everyone, don't roll your tent, don't roll your tarp. Um, crumple it up, shove it in the bag and just stuff it in. They say the same thing with sleeping bags. And I, I think it's a, it's sort of a marketing ploy to, to try and get people to not worry about it because people find it such a hassle to, to fold up. But here's what I've found over the years. I've had uh, tents that have been around for a long time, my personal tents. I have folded them repeatedly on the same folds and never had an issue with it. Now, the reason I do the folding is because when you fold a tent and, and you tightly fold it right from the start and roll it up, squishing all the air out of it, so you start at the closed end and you work to the open end, what you get is a very small, compact package that's easy to store and saves you space. So the, the more space you can free up, the better for it. So if you... Take your tents, take your tarps, fold them up carefully, and roll them from the closed end to the opened end so you squish all the air out. You're going to find you have a lot more space uh, on the motorcycle. When it comes to packing water, a lot of people take their water jugs uh, or other liquids and they pack it inside their waterproof panniers. And if you think about it, the only reason you're putting things in a waterproof container is to keep them dry. So why would you want to put a container of liquid inside the thing that you want to keep the driest? I always recommend never putting anything liquid inside your waterproof containers. No lotions, no water, 
nothing liquid, nothing that can pop open and end up soiling everything that you've wanted to keep dry, that you've worked so hard to keep dry. So keep your liquids on the outside. You can get all kinds of um, little ditty bags and, and special pouches, etc., to hold your water. Or you can just put them, uh, put your water jugs in a stuff sack and, uh, and fasten it onto your motorcycle with a, a strap. And when it comes to strapping things to your motorcycle, one of the best straps that I've found is the Rock Straps. R-O-X, I, I think is what it is. But but basically what you're looking at is some sort of strap that will put tension on. Um, if you try and tie things on, uh, quite often you'll find the load shifts and the, the rope goes loose. So something that, that has some give to it, like a stretchy bungee, is always an asset. But if you're using bungees, um, there's a lot of really weak bungees in the market and they tend to pop off. It's one thing that I see a lot when I'm riding with other people is their gear popping off from the straps they use, uh, the, the bungee cords that don't quite hold on properly um, or they don't stretch out far enough be, because they're cheap, they don't, they don't have the give in them uh, or they have poor quality hooks or maybe it's just on a, on a bad spot. But the, the rock straps that I'm talking about, they actually loop over a bar and, and they have a, a snap plastic buckle, which is great. But whatever you use to, to hold it on, you should make sure that it has some sort of elasticity to it so that you can do it up under tension. That way, if the load shifts, it's still going to hold on somewhat. And of course, like Dr. Fraser said uh, in this podcast as well, um, it's very important to hook it through the loops. Get something through the loops. Don't just put it over the box or over the bag so it can slip out the side. Stick it through the handles, um, through the loops, so you've got something hanging on to it should a, a bungee break or, or something let go. Hopefully, it'll it'll hang on there long enough for you to notice so to recap my four camping tips there number one diaper wipes number two rolling your tarps and your tents rather than stuffing them number three not storing your water inside your waterproof bags or anything liquid inside your waterproof bags and number four the rock straps or some sort of secure strapping system that has elasticity in it to hold things in place Stick around, coming up next, misadventuring Carla King looks at tents and discusses whether size matters. Hi, this is misadventuring Carla King for the Adventure Writer Podcast, and today I want to talk tents. There are a few schools of thought regarding tents, as in, does size matter? And does price matter? Well, I think yes and yes. And so I'm going to talk about two tents, each on the opposite side of the spectrum. Bibler Awani two-person tent and the Redverse two-person tent plus motorcycle garage. I own both of these tents and they each have their advantages and best uses depending on trip length and number of people sleeping together. As a longtime solo traveler, my tendency has been to err on the side of small, light, and expensive. I found out the hard way that quality products are pricey, but they last longer and are more reliable than their cheap, flimsy counterparts. About 15 years ago, I spent over $600 on a Bibler Awani from Black Diamond on the recommendation of a backpacker friend, and I have never been sorry. 
The Iwani is a two-person, four-season tent that weighs about six pounds and packs up to about eight by 20 inches, which is small enough to get lost in my duffel bag. The tent construction is single wall. It's a mountaineering style tent with a built-in roof that extends several inches beyond the front and rear. It sets up really quickly and easily from the inside with three aluminum poles, which is very, very nice in the rain. One horizontal wall completely unzips as a door, which also creates a nice three-sided shelter for sunshade or mild nights out. It's completely freestanding and doesn't need to be staked at all, so you can set it up and then move it around the campsite at will. I've used this tent for backpacking, bicycle, and motorcycle touring. I've taken it to Burning Man a few times, and my friend took it on a month-long camping trip through Italy. Once, after a three-day thunderstorm in the north of France, I emerged to find that it was the only tent still standing. The material is substantial, and the poles keep it very taut, even in high winds. And the yellow interior did an awful lot to keep my spirits up during that time. Also, there are pockets and hooks in convenient places for keeping small items handy and for hanging lamps and damp clothes. You can also buy an optional vestibule and ground cloth, but I've never felt the need for them. The Iwani is a great tent for a solo traveler. It packs small and light for motorcycle camping and is large enough to keep your gear hidden inside as you sleep. With a high ceiling and steep side angles, it's roomy enough to sit up in comfortably. And as a solo woman traveler, it's also not really apparent that I'm alone, which is occasionally important even in these enlightened times. I once told a too interested male camper that my husband had just gone for a walk. Problem solved. I expect to own the Awani another 10 or 15 years, or maybe forever. It's really held up that well. Now onto the other end of the spectrum, the Redbirds motorcycle tent. I recently partnered with a guy who I fondly nicknamed Mr. Stuff. When we travel together, I can be sure that he has packed everything we need for the trip and any possible contingency. We used our Redbirds for the first time last year for a trip that began at Overland Expo and meandered through the Arizona and Utah State Parks. Actually, you can read a lot about that journey in July's BMW On Magazine. The Redbirds is big, with a sleeping area that accommodates a queen-size air mattress with room to spare. Without the air mattress, you can hold a cocktail party in there. It's got that much headroom. It costs $450, it weighs about 14 pounds, and takes up around 10 by 22 inches pack, if you pack it really tight. The floor has bathtub curves, so I wouldn't bother with a ground cloth. After the first couple of times setting it up, it's fairly easy and quick. I think the Revert is great on a trip where two or more people are spreading the weight between the two motorcycles. Though, if I were going on a solo expedition and setting up in a series of base camps for multi-day excursions, I'd consider bringing it along. It can be set up by one person, but it is so much quicker with two as you need to hold the guy lines taut and staking to keep it really tight. The Zipaway Motorcycle Garage is fantastic, not only for hiding your motorcycles and all your stuff and working on your motorcycles in bad weather, but it makes a sheltered living area for lounging or cooking out of the sun or rain. The tent fabric is waterproof and lightweight, and though it's sturdy in the wind, it can get a bit noisy. But if the fabric were any heavier, it wouldn't be as packable, so I think they've done a really good job compromising size and weight. 
Jonathan and I are making more and more trips to Baja in the Land Cruiser, trailering our KTM Dual Sports. This winter, we'll definitely be bringing the Redverts along to create a comfy base camp wherever we land on the peninsula. two tents, the big redverts and the small bibbler Awani. And I know there are a lot more great options out there. I just saw many of them in Moto Village at Overland Expo, which is practically a demonstration area for tents and camping gear. Redverts is a very popular choice in the larger models, and there were a wide variety of small tents to compare. I didn't even see them all. So I look forward to hearing your experiences and recommendations here and over on my site at CarlaKing.com. Thanks for listening. This is Misadventuring Carla King signing off for the Adventure Rider Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show as much as we did making it. Thanks very much for listening. And catch us next week for a new episode of the Adventure Rider Podcast. I'm Jim Martin. Ride safe. Dr. Gregory Frazier, and you are listening to the Adventure Rider Podcast. <laughs>